0: O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so we pray that you, our majestic, holy one, would give us strength now to comprehend and not to be hearers only of your word, but also doers, that you would transform us by the reading and the preaching of holy scripture. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Over the next few weeks, we will be looking at 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 11. We began this series last week, and we'll be here, Lord willing, throughout this semester through the end of the year. But in particular, over the next weeks, we'll be looking at verses 3 through 11, which form a kind of opening sermon to the epistle. And if there is one theme that holds these verses together... It is the theme of godliness, being more like God, being more like him in our thoughts, in our affections, in our attitudes, in our behavior. Think back to January 1, 2020. Uh, You would not have probably chosen what 2020 would be like, but go back to yourself on the first day of this year, thinking of your goals, your aspirations, perhaps setting forward some resolutions, maybe with exercise or food or spending or maybe to read through the Bible this year. Think about what your goals were, even what your goals are tonight for the week ahead. How many of us can honestly say that we have put as one of our goals for this year For this week, growth in godliness. Isn't it the case that whether you look to the president or to the protesters, wherever you look, our world would be better if we saw men and women pursuing holiness, godliness. And do we expect it from the world? Maybe not. But God certainly expects it from us, his children. During these weeks, we are going to look at several aspects of godliness. The power, the pattern, and the premise for godliness. Isn't it amazing when those P's all come together? Tonight, then, the power for godliness. There are, it seems to me, two equal and opposite dangers when it comes to talking about growth in godliness. We might call one the dreamy danger and the other the disbelieving danger. The dreamy danger, which is often associated with people in their youth, might be as a Christian to look at godliness and We see our heroes and we idolize them and we think that they are living in a vastly different spiritual universe than we are. We're idealistic about how fast we can grow and what we think, where we are and where we're headed. We underestimate the reality of indwelling sin. We are unrealistic about how growth actually takes place. We think that we are perhaps just one really great quiet time, or one Christian book, or one awesome conference or retreat away from making a major breakthrough. And so there is a dreamy danger, perhaps most associated with young Christians. We're this close, and boy, we're going to get there. There's a disbelieving danger, on the other hand. Instead of idolizing our heroes, we have long since lost all of our heroes, Instead of being idealistic about how fast we might grow, we are cynical about actually growing. And we look at people who seem to be impressive and we figure to ourselves, well, there's probably a secret. There's probably some secret sin we're not aware of. Or someone challenges us and the the sermons don't quite land on us in the same way. Instead of underestimating the reality of indwelling sin, we underestimate the reality of the Holy Spirit Instead of being unrealistic about how growth takes place, we are unconcerned to utilize the means God has given us to grow. Do one of those dangers describe where you are? A dreamy danger? As I look around and I think perhaps for more of us, a disbelieving danger. If those are the dangers, how should we think of growth in godliness? I would put it like this in a sentence. Though the process is hard... Long, often ordinary, and usually slow, we must grow in godliness, and in fact, we can grow more than we think. Though the process is hard, long, often ordinary, usually slow, we must grow in godliness, and in fact, we can grow more than we think. Follow along as I read just two verses 2 Peter chapter one, verses three and four. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We're looking this evening at the power for godliness. Three questions. Number one, what is the origin of this power? Number two, how do we gain access to this power? And number three, how are we changed by this power? Question number one, what is the origin of this power? You see it there right at the beginning of verse three, his divine power. The power is a divine power. It comes from God. The power is from Christ, his divine power. Now, it's true we can say that there's power from God the Father, but the his, the closest antecedent is in verse two, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. Our Lord. So you can't go wrong in thinking that the His refers to God, but the closest subject is Jesus our Lord. This is the power that comes from Him through knowledge of Him. This is a power that has been granted. You see that word in verse three? Granted to us. So this power, don't think of it like a hamster wheel. You get in there, and how do you grow? in godliness well god gives you the wheel and you just gotta spin 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 with all of your might and you never go anywhere and the faster you work the you don't go anywhere any faster you just spin that wheel that's how we feel about godliness sometimes god just plops us down he goes go run as fast as you can it won't make a difference you're never gonna get anywhere it's not a hamster wheel granted to us, but neither does granted to us means that growth and godliness is an escalator, not a hamster wheel, not an escalator. An escalator, you get on, all right, just stand there, and you let God just bring you up to the highest heavens. And there you go, and you just enjoy as you pass everyone going down, and you just move up. Now, we know that's not the case because later we're going to find that Peter will say, You must make every effort, verse 5, to supplement your faith with all of these virtues. So, no, the power is granted to us as a gift. It's not a hamster wheel, but neither is it an escalator. We are going to make an effort to live out in this power. So, you might say it's like a car, God supplies the power. But in terms of godliness, thinking here of progressive sanctification, not justification. Justification is a forensic declaration. God the judge saying, you have been acquitted of all of your crimes and you are decreed to be righteous on account of the righteousness of Christ. That is all of God and of faith, but in progressive sanctification... It is also by the power of God, but there is a cooperation. We are making an effort. It would be anti-gospel to say, make an effort to be justified. But plainly, verse 5 says, we make an effort to be sanctified. That is, the power in the car, the battery, the engine, the fuels from God. And yet we, we put our foot on the gas and we steer and we make progress. The emphasis here is on the gracious nature of this power, that we are called to this life of godliness. You see in verse 3, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Look down at verse 10. We have the language of calling again. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. This is not a calling to a job or a vocation. This is not just the general call of the gospel, but this is the special, electing, regenerating, effectual call in the life of the Christian. We are called to holiness. And so we have power from Christ who called us, saved us, and bestows upon us power. So don't think that everything in this sermon here, in these first uh, three through 11, is, is a message just telling you, come on, do better, work harder, try more. First thing God wants to tell us, there is divine power. And so if we think that progress in godliness is not possible for you, for your spouse, for your children, for your friends, then you are denying the sovereign power of God that he has granted to us. That is the origin of this power, its divine power. Second question, how do we gain access to this power? We'll look at two words. The first we saw last week in verse 2, and we see it again in verse 3. He has given us power, all that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. So we have this power through knowing Christ. And through the knowledge of Christ, he has called us to his own glory and excellence. You could understand that little preposition in a variety of ways. He called us to, as the ESV has it, his own glory and excellence, meaning to belong to or to become like his glory and excellence. Or you could give it the sense of for, he has called us for his own glory and excellence, Or the sense of by, he has called us on the basis of his own glory and excellence. Greek prepositions are quite flexible, and maybe it means all of those. The point is, we have this power through knowing Christ. So as we saw last week, there is a cognitive element to our growth in godliness. We must understand who he is, what he has accomplished. And so we interpret the world differently. One of the great insights I remember from just reading different books from whether it was David Pollison or Paul Tripp or some of you have been trained in some of that CCEF or biblical counseling material. One of the real great insights is they remind us that we are not just those who experience the world, but we are always those who are interpreting our experiences in the world. If suddenly you have, ladies, a tremendous, excruciating, unlike anything in your entire life, pain, say right about here, it makes a very big difference whether you interpret that to be a surprising pain or you're nine months pregnant. Uh, It's still pain. It still hurts, but how you interpret it, what is this pain doing? Why is this here? Is it to be expected? Is it unexpected? Is it producing something scary? Is it yielding something glorious? Your interpretation of that event shapes. And in fact, though it may be the same physical sensation, our brain, science tells us, our brain is always sending messages about the pain that we're experiencing. So we interpret, we never just Passively receive life, but we are always interpreting the things, and so it's important that cognitively we have the knowledge of Christians, so that we interpret, we understand, though we may not know God's entire plan in putting things together for us, we understand we have a loving heavenly Father, we have a sovereign God, He has a purpose, history is moving somewhere. God is in control all of this is to help us interpret life. We serve and follow a suffering savior, one who was rejected. So it is through knowledge. Think of the old, uh, what they used to put on the, uh, some of the Saturday morning cartoons or Schoolhouse Rock. If you're a lot younger than me, go look it up. Uh, Knowledge is power. And there was like a shooting star or something. Knowledge is power. Well, it's true. This power from God comes to us through knowledge. That's the first word. Look at the second word, verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So how do you have access to this power? What, What is, okay, so God has the power, that's the outlet, How do you plug your your cord, your extension cord, into the power that you want from God for godliness? Because it, it sounds wonderful. God's got power. How do you get that? You get it through knowledge, and you get it, he says, through promises. By his glory and excellence, Christ has provided for the fulfillment of these great and precious promises. Now, what are the promises? He doesn't specify here. If you look at chapter 3, verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? So that's one of the promises, the the great and very precious promise that Christ is going to return. The promise in chapter 3 of eternal life, of a new heavens and a new earth That gives you power for godliness, as we'll see developed throughout the book, knowing that Christ is going to return to judge the living and the dead. There's power in that promise. If you are not a very good babysitter and you have let the house run amok and the children, the inmates are now running the asylum and things are going very poorly, but you remember the promise that the parents will be returning at 10 p.m. and you look and it's 9:50, that very great and precious promise may orient you to what you have to do in the next 10 minutes. Or perhaps to use the babysitter analogy, you have done your best and yet you are tied up literally to a chair from the children, pastor's kids no doubt you will have in your mind the very great and precious promise that this will soon be over and the parents will be returning. So that's one of the promises, that Christ is going to return. We know even broader than that, the Old Testament promises of the Messiah, the age of the Spirit, the new covenant, these are certainly some of the promises that Peter is clinging to. Or just the general promises of the Bible, As I've said before, Matthew 5, 8 has been for me the most effective verse in helping to combat the temptation or the sin of lust. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. There's power in that verse. Why? It's a promise. Do you believe? So, sanctification is by faith. As justification is by faith. They're not identical. We make an effort in sanctification, but they both are according to faith. You must believe that promise. If you fight to believe that blessed are the pure in heart, for you will see God. And you believe that to see God in the life to come and to see and to experience him now in this life is better is more satisfying, is more glorious, is more intoxicating, is more beautiful than what you could click on, that's a promise. And there's power in that promise. If you're tempted to live for status and position, You hear a promise from Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's a promise. Or you're living for success and finding it unsatisfying and you remember the promise of Jesus in John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And you believe that. There's power, or you're tempted to greed or to hoarding, and you cling to the promise of Hebrews thirteen five. let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or if you are prone to sinful anxiety and worry, you remember the promise in Lamentation 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so as you're prone to anxiety, which is living out the future before it gets here, and anxiety tells you the worst that can happen and you, you, you lose a spouse or you lose a child or you lose your job or you lose your dream and what will it be like when that happens and I get there tomorrow or a week from now or a year from now, The promises of God tell you that even if all of that should come to pass, the steadfast love of the Lord will not cease. His mercies will not come to an end. In fact, even on the worst morning you could imagine, there will be new mercies there. That's a promise. So there is power through the promises of God. Power that God will deliver what he promises and power in that you believe what he promises. So sanctification is and remains a fight of faith. To believe all of these great and precious promises, read your Bible each morning or evening, looking for a promise. What has God promised to me today? What has he given as an anchor for my soul to which I can cling? There's power in believing the promises of God. And then third, how are we changed by this power? The origin of the power is from God. We gain access through knowledge and through promises. And how are we changed by this power? Well, we have both positively and negatively. Positively, we are changed by participating in the divine nature, you see in verse four. So that, purpose clause, through them, what is the them? The promises you may become partakers of the divine nature. That almost sounds not quite right. Partakers of the divine nature. It almost sounds new age or pantheistic. It was common language of Greek philosophy in the first century. Peter was using popular terminology, filling it up with Christian meaning. It's worth noting the only other time in the Bible we have this word, divine nature. The word is theos, T-H-E-I-O-S, different than theos, God. Theos is in Acts 17.29 when Paul preaches his famous sermon to the philosophers on the Areopagus. So there's something about this concept that is a a bridge to the Greco-Roman conceptual world. We almost never use this language of participating in the divine nature. In fact, if someone were to say to you in your covenant group, well, how is it going? Well, I've been really, really fighting the good fight of faith to believe in the promises of God. And through that, I really feel like I've become a partaker in the divine nature. You might think, "Ah, have you taken your theology class? That doesn't sound quite right. So what does Peter mean here? Well, we are not using the language of becoming deified, but this language has often been at the center of the Christian tradition in the Eastern Orthodox Church more than in the Western Church. Athanasius focused on the incarnation almost to the exclusion of the crucifixion. He said, quote, the son became man that we might become God. Now, there's a way that that's heresy, And there's a way through 2 Peter 1.4 that that is a precious promise. Eastern Orthodoxy describes salvation less in terms of atonement and more in terms of solidarity, identification, even divinization. The union here is not according to the essence or even more technical theological language, the hypostasis we are not having a participation ontologically in the being of God so what do we mean because we don't want to so guard this from error that we don't allow it to really land on us with its force well one way to think about this language of participating in the divine nature is to use the more common Pauline language of union with Christ It's a central doctrine of our whole salvation, that to be saved is to have a union with Christ. Even this language of theosis can be appropriate if we use it in the right way. Evidence that this idea of participating in the divine nature, actually many more recent scholars have shown that it, did play a role in the theology in the Western church. We're talking about Augustine, Aquinas, Luther. Listen to what Calvin, for example, says about this verse and this language of participating in the divine nature. Quote, let us then mark that the end of the gospel is to render us eventually conformable to God and if we may so speak, to deify us. That's Calvin. Calvin. In the Latin, that word is quasi-deify us. That's translated there, if I may so speak. So Calvin is guarding himself. We're not deified in that you and I become gods, but he's saying there is a sense in which there is this process of theosis. He goes on to say that we become God, not in essence, but in quality, like God. So he says earlier in his commentary, the excellence of the promises arises from the fact that they make us partakers of the divine nature than which nothing more outstanding can be imagined. So Peter is not saying that our personality is absorbed into the persons of the Godhead in some mystical way. He doesn't say that we now have a divine nature as the Son as a divine nature, together with a human nature. Peter says we participate. We become partakers. Again, the language, which you've heard before, koinonia, fellowship, communion, participation. We share in certain qualities that are characteristic of God. The language is ethical, not ontological. Ontology having to do with being. We don't become a different kind of being We see the second half of the verse is going to talk about escaping corruption. So we're thinking about virtue, about excellencies, about godliness. So once we have all the appropriate guardrails, we still want to let this verse as a remarkable expression of what we ought to become land on us. As Calvin says, greater than which nothing can be imagined. So that properly understood, we can say God has given us these promises so that we can become like God. That's amazing. You will not find more exalted language of what is possible and what is uh, expected of us in the Christian life than that every one of you here who knows Jesus are being transformed to be a participant in the divine nature of God Himself. That's the positive, is fleshed out by the negative. Having escaped corruption. Notice corruption is not inherent in creation itself. Corruption in the world is caused by, look at the end of verse four, sinful desire. So Peter's very careful here as he's trying to incorporate. This Christian teaching in some categories familiar to Greek philosophy, he's very careful to say, unlike the Greek philosophers, that creation itself is not the corrupting power. This is where you fall into the danger of asceticism and you think that if I'm really spiritual, I won't like any food or drink and sex will be dirty and I won't like sports and I won't like music and I won't laugh about anything. No, that's to think that corruption is inherent in the created world itself. We saw this morning, it is very good. What has been corrupting are these sinful desires. So there is an unhealthy drive for power or status or sex in the wrong place with the wrong person at the wrong time or a drive for security or comfort or self or love of money. We want to use good things in the wrong way or at the wrong time or in the wrong proportion. But the corruption in the world is caused by sinful desires. And listen, this is a good reminder for us as as parents. We want to protect our kids. I do. I want to be careful what they listen, what they watch, what's on their devices, what's on their TV, the friends that they hang out with. And that's good. But remember, the worst corruption, the corruption we must pray against most is not out there, the corruption that's in here. Yet the world provides the temptation, but the corruption is in their hearts. The corruption is in my heart. And so we ought to be good and wise about where we go and what we do and not put ourselves in the way of temptation and yet realize you are your greatest danger. The greatest corrupting influence for each of our children are the sinful desires in their own hearts. Calvin says, he sets the corruption of the world in opposition to the divine nature. But he shows that this corruption is not in the elements which surround us, but in our hearts. Because these vicious and depraved affections prevail. The fountain and root of which he points out by the word lust. Translated in the ESV at the end of verse four, desire. Corruption then, Calvin says, is thus placed in the world that we may know that the world is in us. Corruption is thus placed in the world that we know that the world is in us is in us. It's easy to look at the world, especially these days, and see it as a fearful place, a place that's filled with danger and disease and upheaval and violence and tension and misunderstanding. Do you realize, dear friends, brothers and sisters, that there is a cauldron of all of that in the human heart. And hopefully, if we've been walking with the Lord, he has transformed us. And it's, it's, it's not all in us as it is in the world, but, but make no mistake about it, we still, all of us, on this side of the grave, will wrestle with the power and the presence of indwelling sin. We have desires. We have lusts. The Christian life, you could summarize like this, the Christian life is day by day, to fight sinful desires with precious promises. The desires that come from your heart and the promises that come from God so that those desires are tamed by the promises of God to believe that what he will give you is better than what your sinful desires and my sinful desires would promise to us. We have everything necessary for life and godliness. Isn't that amazing? In verse three, he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You you can't say, if I had more money, I could be holy. If I had more education, I could be holy. If I had better parents, I could be holy. If I didn't live with all these people, I could be holy. Uh, Sure, all of those things matter. But this verse tells us, in God's power, by knowledge of him and his promises, he has given to us everything we need for life and godliness. God does not promise you power to solve the problem of world hunger. He does not promise you the power to be a straight-A student. He does not promise you the power to... Ace your organic chemistry test. He promises you all the power you need for life and godliness. Which means on the one hand, don't expect God to give you what he has not promised you. And on the other hand, trust him to give all that he has promised. So you could take the promise in verse three, he's given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. And you can let that be a chastisement to you, no excuses, that's true. But you can also take it positively. It means there's hope. It means there's power at your disposal. It means that God is on your side. It means that God wants you to participate in his very self, the divine nature. So where do you land? Are you, when you think about godliness, more prone to need the application that says, listen, you've been making a lot of excuses for yourself. No excuses. Are you the person that needs the positive to believe? There's hope. God's not done with you yet. I don't know what it says about me or my upbringing, but I I bet there's a lot of you like me. I, I, I need the second message. It's not that I can't make excuses for myself. Of course I can. But I tend to be pretty good at looking honestly and saying, okay, okay, you gotta do better, Kevin. This last week was not a good week. Today was not a good day. You gotta do better. You shouldn't have spoken like that. You shouldn't have thought like that. So I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded that God has power and that transformation from one little bitty degree of glory to the next can happen. There's hope. So if you are discouraged by your constant failings, by your lack of progress, if you find yourself often reciting the litany of disappointments you have with yourself, and not in a penitent Godward way, just in a woe is me, I've messed up my life, despairing, frustrated way, then let this passage give you some renewed hope. Don't fall into the disbelieving danger. Dare to have some dreams again so i leave you with this do you and i really believe that progress in godliness is possible and let me ask that question in a slightly different way do you want it you might get the theology question right of course i believe that it's possible god's power i got it sanctification progressive up yep, onto glorification right do you want it do you actually care about this week this month, this year, gaining access to the power of God that you might grow in godliness, participate in the divine nature. Do you want that? C.S. Lewis, as is often the case, puts it so well, I think that many of us, when Christ has enabled us to overcome one or two sins that were an obvious nuisance, we are inclined to feel, though we do not put it in these exact words, that we are now good enough. He has done all he wanted to do in us and we should be obliged if God would now leave us alone. And we say, I never expected to be a saint. I only wanted to be a decent, ordinary chap. And we imagine when we say this that we are being humble. We may be content to remain what we call ordinary people. But God is determined to carry out quite a different plan. To shrink back from that plan is not humility It is laziness and cowardice. To submit to it is not conceit or megalomania. It is obedience. Our world is always telling us you be an individual and be different. And it's amazing how often the message to be different and be yourself means walk in lockstep with what everyone else already thinks and does and looks like. Here's the truth. There's only one person in the universe that you really have to be like. And that's God. Now, if your parents are following after God, you should try to be like them. If your friends are, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. But really, there's one tuning for it. There's only one being in all the universe that you have to be like. And it's the one person who's in heaven and has power for you to be like him. Brothers and sisters, you can grow. You must grow. You will grow. God has given you all the power you need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great and very precious promises. Give us grace through knowledge of the Lord Jesus and through all that you have promised to us fighting the fight of faith that we may participate in your very life to be like you. In Jesus we pray, amen.